0: But in the American context, I mean, like, I hate to say it, but nobody gave much of a shit about Russia in 2015. There was a part of me, and maybe you've kind of experienced the same sensation, that my heart, a certain part of my heart goes out to her.
1: Alrighty folks, welcome to another episode of The Russia Guy, the podcast where I talk to interesting and influential figures in Russia-focused journalism, academia, and activism. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, and this is the show where I interview people about trending news stories, the overarching themes of Russia watching, and the ins and outs of life as a professional in this field. This show is supported by listeners like you at patreon.com backslash Kevin Rothrock, where you can contribute as much or as little of your hard-earned money as you like. Thank you very much to my active patrons. There are currently 15 of you out there, and I appreciate your support. Now, let's get on with today's show, which is about Maria Butina, who was recently sentenced to 18 months in prison for acting as an unregistered agent of the Russian state.
0: there's so much misunderstanding that this wasn't you know a foreign agents registration act violation that's casey michelle
1: an investigative reporter at think progress a member of the advisory council for the hudson institute's kleptocracy initiative and a senior investigative fellow with the human rights foundation casey has written about and followed maria butina's case closely since she was arrested last july and he kindly joined the russia guy to talk about her sentence and answer some of my questions about her case we talked about the role of money, of a declaration by former FBI counterintelligence expert Robert Anderson about Alexander Torshin, James Bamford, and more. If these names don't mean anything to you yet, just listen to the episode and prepare to be gloriously educated. Now,
0: let's get on with the show. Now, when, when, when people see, okay, a foreign lobbyist who is or has undertaken lobbying or kind of, you know, this backchannel communication or this communications on behalf of a foreign government, the certainly over the last couple years, the understanding or the impression is that, oh, that must be a Farah violation. I mean, for the relatively few people who are learning what Farah is or know what what Farah is, you know, and I've had the good fortune. I had the, you know, when I was at, um, I went to the Harriman Institute for graduate school at Columbia and I was there. Part of my master's thesis was looking into Farah, looking into Farah violations, especially in the post-Soviet space, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, and Russia. So that's how I familiarize myself with Farah. So I'd like to think that I'm, as well steeped in anyone who's not a lawyer in terms of foreign lobbying regulations. This section 951, I had never come across. I didn't know anything about it until we saw everything with with Boutina. So I don't necessarily know that I can speak to the actual kind of legal precedent or legal history of implementing and enforcing 951. That said, I was surprised by how, and I don't know if you had a chance to read through any of the transcripts or some of the coverage. I think, you know, you tweeted out Mike Eccles Piece on it at RFRL, And I thought I was relatively, relatively surprised by how forceful the judge was coming out in her not only agreeing wholeheartedly with the prosecutors in terms of yes, it will be 18 months and yes, it will presumably be automatic deportation thereafter, but the kind of language that she used. And she did couch it by saying, okay, you're young. You're ahead of you. You're bright. You know, she's what, 29, 30 years old. Yeah, she has decades and decades to go. Anything, you know, she can take her life in any direction. But the judge did echo what the I think he read through the sentencing memo of that former FBI cyber unit director saying, you know, she was a clear and present threat to democracy. She was a clear and present threat to the integrity of American Russian relations on a diplomatic angle or on the diplomatic scale. And this was kind of language that the judge said as well. you know this was a clear effort at again creating this back channel at tilting relations, at redirecting ties and redirecting communications beneath the official diplomatic channels to push American policy on Russia and I mean uh, Russian policy in the US as well. Obviously this is taking place in the. US in a certain direction beneath what you know UI and 300 other million Americans would understand to be, The normal processes of diplomatic relations. So I I think it was surprising to see just how forcefully she came out, especially given, and I don't know if you had a chance to read through all of the um, the letters of uh, the character reference letters that came out in these pre-sentencing documents as well. I mean, it was like two dozen letters, each and every single one of them saying she is a young, idealistic, lovely, intelligent, hardworking woman. I mean, yeah, these are family members and these are you know, former colleagues and these are former teachers. There was a couple of Americans in there. But the fact that the judge seemed to pay no attention whatsoever to those character reference letters, in addition to echoing the language we saw from the prosecutors and from the FBI, former FBI cyber unit or, or cyber director.
1: This is Robert Anderson. Yeah, this is
0: Robert Anderson. So when you, it, it's funny because you and I was thinking about this earlier, you kind of transpose that against what we've seen play out in other sentencing and other hearings and other prosecutions against the other individuals. Obviously Bhutina is the only Russian national who's been caught up in the investigations into Russian interference. But you think of the Paul Manaforts and the Michael Cohen's and the Rick Gates and the George Papadopoulos, et cetera, et cetera. Such limited I mean, you know, you have a guy like Paul Manafort who's working 30 years at behest of of the worst of the worst, who had been laundering tens of millions of dollars as clear as day, getting, what was it, you know, five, six years in prison as opposed to the you know, life sentencing or, you know, 40 years, many people thought that he would get. So you have this kind of interesting juxtaposition where, in effect, the book that the prosecutors threw at Butina was upheld. But then you have all all those on the American side who, and and again, I don't know this is anything more than just an interesting juxtaposition with the two, who had such relatively scant sentences imposed on them. You know, Papadopoulos is two weeks for lying to the FBI. Rick Gates is, whatever, a couple months for much of the same. And And then Manafort you know, only a couple, yeah, it's a couple years in prison, but it's not the life sentence that a lot of people thought he would get. So, yeah, I guess that's how I would answer the um, kind of impression or surprise of the actual verdict at the end of the day.
1: Did you get the sense that the Anderson declaration, which came kind of at the last minute, right? It was like submitted in the last few days, in days, just days before the verdict, right? Yeah. Is that, I mean, I don't know how much you know about these processes, but is that unusual or is that a sort of standard practice?
0: In my, my impression is, and my understanding is that that is an unusual or an atypical aspect. And again, this is, this is on the one hand, in the one sense, a very atypical situation because this section 951 violation seems so rarely enforced in and of itself I, 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 my impression is and she pled she pled guilty to that or did she
1: plead guilty to F- or Farrah or Farah? It violation?
0: wasn't Farah. It was the 951. So it's, it's not, um, so again, it's this weird, bizarre crevice into which she falls. It's not spying. She's clearly not a secret agent. I mean, that's just, again, obvious as day and it's not a farah violation. So it's not out and out lobbying. It's this, the term I saw used was espionage light. Right. And so it's this kind of, Bizarre <laughs> nether region that she falls into. Given that it's such a bizarre situation in and of itself, an unprecedented situation in and of itself. So it wasn't a fair. But she pled guilty to that. Yeah. So she pled guilty. As far as anyone can tell, she cooperated. She wasn't causing a hassle or a headache for anyone after she was arrested. You know, she was arrested because they thought she was a flight risk. Obviously, she didn't. She didn't try to escape. Uh, yeah, it doesn't seem like she was a, a problem for anyone afterward. Obviously, she wanted as little of a sentence as possible. Yeah, so it wasn't a fair violation like some of these other guys. You know, Mike Flynn's buddies, Manafort, and, you know, that, that whole, crew you know, that, that uh, what was it, the, the former White House counsel just got um, tagged, what was his name, Gregory Craig. Did you see that Greg Craig, this guy who was lobbying on behalf of, you know, Yanukovych's regime a couple years ago, back in 2012, 2013, was just sentenced for fair violations. So, obviously, the fair violations are still going on, but, um, yeah, but Tina wasn't uh, wrapped up in that, so.
1: I wonder if she understands what she's confessed to because she just gave a press conference a few hours ago and she was asked, you know, why did you cooperate? Why did you confess? And she said, well, on the cooperation, she said, well, I only told the truth. And so, okay, sure. It would be strange to say, oh, well, I lied or, oh, I wasn't telling the truth beforehand. But when she came to the, to the confession, her, her plea, I guess, she said that she had done something that she needed to register for and she admits that she made a mistake because it turns out it was kind of the, this is kind of the way I'm paraphrasing but it turns out that you know what I was doing in terms of making political contacts I needed to have been registered but that wasn't actually what she No,
0: no, it's it's and the terminology is again convoluted and complicated and she didn't have to register with the Foreign Agents Registration Act database so she didn't have to submit da- the, the type of paperwork that you see submitted with other FARA submittees so that's contracts, that's any published documents, and that is the actual document in and of itself saying who you're representing, how long, and how much you're being paid for, and what you're gonna do for that. She did have to, and I don't know what actual form this communication would have had to take place, communicate to the attorney general's office that she would be representing a foreign interest, and that this foreign interest being the Russian government, or maybe specifically Alexander Torshin, or maybe specifically you know, the Russian MFA, I, I, I don't know. So it's not that she would have shown up in the FARA database.
1: She's not. But if she had, if she, so if she had registered, she could have done yeah. what she did. Yeah. I see. So it, it, it was a registration issue, just not Farah.
0: Yeah. If she had communicated to the attorney general what she was doing, what she was trying to do, maybe for the duration. I don't know if that's a requirement as well. She would have been fine. She would have been, she would have gotten off scot-free. And this, you know, this raises questions of you know, her entire defense and those who have come to her defense is that she was naive. She didn't know what she was doing. uh, She didn't know American legislation. uh, So how can we, you know, punish her for it? And that may be true. You know, at the end of the day, she may not have known whatsoever that she did need to register that what she was doing was illegal and that what she was doing would at the end of the day attract so much interest from the American intelligence community and from authorities and from the FBI specifically. She may not have known any of that. But again, obviously, ignorance is no defense in the eye of the law. And it certainly didn't seem to mitigate her her sentencing whatsoever so obviously the the question being is if she you know in some parallel universe if she registers or if she tells the attorney general what she's doing does the nra care you know do they still go ahead with these you know these trips to moscow with these meetings with folks like you know torsion or rogozin do they still go ahead and looking at maria butina as their kind of key node of entry into russia and into creating these kind of lines of communication Maybe, maybe not. I, I at the end of the day, I think they maybe wouldn't have cared so much because if we remember, I mean, they're already meeting with government officials. They're already right? they're already meeting with government. I mean, think back to twenty fifteen, right? Nobody. Okay, yes, Russia's in the news a little bit for Crimea and Donbass and MH seventeen, but in the American context, I mean, like I hate to say, it, but nobody gave much of a shit about Russia. In 2015, you know, I I work as a journalist, I was a freelancer at the time, selling these stories on these odd contacts, these odd meetings, these strange trips to Moscow with these American fringe groups. Yeah, there was some market for it, but a lot of them were shot down. There wasn't a lot of interest. And at the time, even if Boutina had been registered, I still think that the NRA would have said, you know what? That's okay. She's still getting us these relatively high level meetings in Moscow, again, with you know, obviously, it's not with Putin. It's not with you know Patrushev. It's not with Peskov. It's with you know Rogozin. It's with it's with Torsion. You know, kind of second tier officials. I mean, we're still sanctioned. You know, the NRA was still fine taking these meetings with sanctioned Russian officials. So a Butina registry, a registration in Washington. I don't know that that would have done much. So, anyways.
1: You work a lot on like dirty money flows, and I'm curious what's the role or is there a role of dirty or suspicious money in anything related to the boot in the case?
0: Yeah, so as it pertains to, and this was one of the actually the interesting things that we saw come out of the um, the sentencing documents. I mean, in addition to the Robert Anderson. Discussion and, and um, you, you know, cre- uh, uh, image creation or, or description of Butina as this spot and assess, you know, person you know, description of the she posed. One of the most interesting things that stood out to me was this and maybe you saw there's uh, Butina and Paul Erickson, who is this GOP operative, her uh, her boyfriend, apparently, for the last couple of years, had set up this LLC in South Dakota called um, uh, Bridges LLC, and for the last two, three years, both of them said that that LLC was used for paying for Butina's tuition at American University, which in and of itself is a very odd way to pay for I mean, you've, you've gone to school for, you know, however many years, that's that's an odd way to pay for an education. I guess it's doable, but not necessarily something that I or any of my friends or anyone I know has done. And so there was always a question about what that LLC was actually used for. And it came out in the uh, Boutina's lawyer statement. So it's not from the prosecutor's side, but from her side saying that actually that LLC, and this is going to be disappointing for people who want you know, some kind of nefarious money flow. Slash fund. Yeah, fun. right, right, right. That she was paying off, you know, the Scott Walkers and the Bobby Jindals and all those other GOP 2016 contenders, you know, paying off the Trump campaign. But it turns out that that LLC was used to provide – it was used as a means for the <laughs> Outdoor Channel, which is a, a TV channel here in the US. And some of these Outdoor Channel guys were on those NRA trips with Butina. You know, there's a close relationship with the outdoor channel and the NRA. It was used as a means to pay Butina uh, consulting fees to try to set up a television show on the outdoor channel, outdoor network of Putin. Going around bare chested, hunting bears, you know, flying with the cranes, all that stuff. There were these. Like a single episode or an entire show? No, 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 no. no. A series. And there's been a little bit of coverage of this. There was a report in ABC that kind of broke the story last year. I mean, it's one of these just bizarre details that comes out. So. They thought they could get the Russian president to star in a TV show? So, Butina said a lot of things. She made a lot of promises. And again, Torshin is very, you know, he's close to a lot of the folks in the Kremlin. He's not obviously, you know, he's not a Silovik. He's not in the inner circle. But there are a lot of strings that he can pull, maybe less than once upon a time. But there were discussions. And I I mean, I honestly, I don't know. I wouldn't put it past Putin to say, well, yeah, I think maybe at the end of the day, this this might be something that would interest me. I mean, you know how bored he is these days. You know, he's just working out. He's just going to the gym and then he sits at his desk for a couple of days or a couple hours a day. Might have been something that interested him, but it it didn't go anywhere. So we don't have, unfortunately, my DVR isn't full of of shirtless Putin going around in in Siberia, you know, with his duck call and, and, and shootings some waterfowl, so that was it. So just 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 briefly, just to you know piggyback on that, that was the, one of the main financial questions. The other one is why was there such a substantial increase in the uh, NRA funding for, uh, for for the Republican Party, specifically the Trump campaign in 2016 versus 2012? You know, it was I don't know, it was like it was a hundred percent jump in terms. It was I think it increased thirty million dollars or maybe two thirty million dollars in 2016 versus 2012, and no one's quite sure why that took place and where all that funding came from. And I don't know how familiar you are with this, but it has come out that some of their foreign donations did mix up with some of their domestic donations. So we don't have a full answer about where all that money came from and why there was such a substantial jump in 2016. I do know that Ron Wyden, who is a who's the senator, the uh, senior senator out of Oregon, which is my home state, he is working on a kind of a formal report about that financing. His office still doesn't have a deadline for that, so we should have a better idea about where all that funding came from and then any kind of questions thereafter. But again, that's and that's obviously the NRA, and obviously they were working with Butina at the time, but as it pertains to any kind of suspicious financing that might have been rerouted through the NRA via Boutina, we don't have any real answers on that. It's all just supposition at this point. And again, there's nothing that came out in the case pointing to that. Obviously, American... Electoral integrity as it pertains to financing and financial support for candidates is wide open. There are any number of ways that you can anonymously fund campaigns or PACs or specific candidates. So there are still some questions, but you know, I, I don't know that any smoking gun will come out as it pertains to Butina saying, OK, pay this there at this time via this method.
1: Well, what do you make of her apparent problems financing her legal team?
0: Well, so this is the... I have had more fun over the last two or three years getting the chance to get to know some of the most bizarre people I've ever come across in my entire life. And one of those guys... Alexander Yonov? Alexander fucking Yonov. Maybe. (laughs) Man, this is a guy that sometimes Alexei and I kind of talk... Because I think Alexei knows him or... Knows of him from his, like, from a couple years ago. Uh, Alexander Uronov is one of my favorite people in the entire world. He's the seven foot tall guy who wears tailored suits and alligator skin shoes. He's the most, I don't know if you've seen his Instagram, he is the most dapper goddamn guy on the face of the earth. Everything's high class for him. I found him because he was organizing the American separatists to fly back and forth from Moscow in twenty sixteen. The guys from Texas, the guys from California so that's how I first got to know Alexander. I would highly recommend his instagram account if you get a if you get a chance. it's just anti globalist one or something like that. so I have the, the alert anytime to post something, but it was very strange to see him all of a sudden involve himself in fundraising for for butina. you know I don't. It's it's a difficult thing to figure out how much oxygen to give these guys, right? I obviously take a very great enjoyment. Uh, I take very great enjoyment, and and I see there's a there's a wonderful entertainment aspect of it. And this is something that I've struggled with over the last two three years. I and some of the other journalists who are kind of covering this space before everyone else was two or three years ago to figure out, you know, how much are you playing into this image making of them f- for themselves? How much are you playing into this you know, this kind of crafting of themselves as 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 you know, people that are worth paying attention to. And, and, you know, Yonov did raise whatever it was, a couple, you know, 20000 or $30,000 for Butina's defense. You know, I think it was, it was interesting what we saw, and this is something that you commented on over the last, you know, six, nine months is, you know, Torsion's role in all of this, right? I mean, specifically in his relationship with Butina and Butina's family. You know, Torsion, by all indications, is a very well-off and well-moneyed man. He is, uh, by all indications, has by all indications significant access to revenue-generating streams. I'm not going to say that he's necessarily someone who oversees a wide range of illicit activities, but and I don't know if you saw this when he was working in Spain a couple years ago. You know, the Spanish prosecutors and Spanish investigators picked up things of him being the kind of the leader of you know like Tembelskaya gang in you know in southern Spain, and they were going to arrest him. And he eventually fled before they could arrest him. So he has, or would seem to have, access to deep pockets. And the fact that he – I haven't seen any indication that he's been financing any of Butina's defense, that they've had to rely on people like Yonov instead, and that he has, according to Butina, you know, distanced himself considerably from her and from her family over the past better part of a year is interesting to me because they did seem to have such a close relationship prior to that. You know, it's funny. There, there, is a, there, there is a part of me, and maybe you've kind of experienced the same sensation, that my heart – a certain part of my heart goes out to her. Right, you know, she—it's just, you know, a because she was placed in solitary confinement for as long as she was, which, you know, frankly, no one should be, you know, regardless of the crime. That's a horrible method of of jailing imprisonment. But two, because it's, you know, she was dropped as quickly as anybody, um, uh, you know. And okay, yeah, the Russian embassy has that, you know, nice profile picture of free Maria Butina at the end of the day. But it's, it's, it's. She's just been. You know, abandoned.
1: It's kind of unusual because a lot of the Russian messaging strategy is typically to embrace whatever is said about them, and so you would think you would expect along those lines, you would expect Torshin to yeah. amplify his support for Putina yeah. and to to be on the be in the news constantly talking about what a what a kind person she is and how she's idealistic and all this stuff, and
0: you get the sense that. He was told he fucked up. Yeah, yeah. I would say that that's exactly what he was told. You know, and I don't think it's any surprise that it was last year that he was um, he announced his retirement from uh, the Russian Central Bank. I don't I don't think that timing is is um, you know suspicious at all. I think there's a very clear conversation that he had, whether it was with Putin, whether it was with um, you know Patrushev, whether it was with you know some with Sechin, who I don't know who, uh, that said this is not the kind of press that we want this is exactly the opposite of what we want to take place in terms of cultivating these relationships in terms of influencing these notable figures in washington or in new york or or what or in certain political circles it backfired spectacularly and and to an extent torsion has been the fall guy in the sense that he's now retired but i mean i mean they've they've washed their hands effectively of, of butina that said they still have those you know Twitter hashtag campaigns and obviously she's been, um, you know, which I think, you you know, so you you and your colleagues have helped to highlight, um, you know, relatively, I mean, they still, she's still discussed on like Pierre Canal or whatever. It's not as if she's, she's disappeared, but uh, yeah, I think there's every indication that they are trying to, hoping to eventually wash their hands of it all. And uh, never see a repeat of it again. I wanted
1: to ask about the spot and assassin the spy light stuff that by Anderson because it's it's I, I I read the his statement or I kind of skimmed it a bit I didn't read the entire thing.
0: It's but, like two pages long.
1: It's not. I was like I, I get it, I get it's it, like, I got hey, it, Mister. you are busy guys. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was like, all right, spy light, great. Um, I, although I don't think that's actually he doesn't say spy light. I think that was in the Mike Echel thing. He says spot and assess over and over again. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, he says spot and assess like fifteen times.
1: And my impression was is that the idea that. The, the, this this whole notion of butina as a spot in assess foreign agent is premised on the idea that her main contact is Torshin. Torshin served in the Federation Council and as deputy governor of the central bank and therefore represents a direct link to Russia's decision-making apparatus meaning that her her messages with him which which they have these records of and they're not they're they're they 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 look kind of like, Foolish, most of them, at least.
0: The term naive has also been bandied about plenty. of. Sure,
1: out. yeah. Yeah, and so these communications, therefore, constitute intelligence gathering for the Russian state. There's this like kind of direct chain. And I wonder, like, I mean, because I don't know if torsion is indeed a part of the decision-making apparatus, right? He's clearly someone with his—he has access to rent, just rents that the state, can, the, the state or the mafia or whatever— but that doesn't necessarily mean that he is involved in the influence operation that we know occurred, right? And so you know I don't know either way. Like I'm inclined to be skeptical just because no, but the few, so few people are. But if everyone was if everyone was skeptical, I'd probably be saying, well, hey, maybe he is, you know so like I don't I don't have like any truth any access to truth here. But it might, do you think I'm understanding the spot and assess thing right or is there something else with Butina? that?
0: Yeah no I think you're, I think you're understanding the spot and assess thing exactly correctly I mean it's premised on these communications between her and torsion it's premised on the relationship that her and torsion um, seem to have had seem to have built for one another over the last four, five six years. It's premised on the relationship that torsion himself had with the NRA and with NRA higher ups and then it's also obviously premised on the types of la- type of language that she used uh, in some of her writing some of her communications saying that they're creating a channel. These, quote unquote, friendship dinners that they had with, you know, sitting American um, congressmen. this diplomacy project that she had, et cetera, et cetera. It's all obviously part and parcel of this spot and assessed. I mean, I honestly think torsion is a fascinating figure. I've never had the chance to interview him. I only know what I've read about him, and I certainly only know what prosecutors have said about him in the past. So I I I, I mean, yeah, okay, Federation Council, yeah, deputy deputy governor of the uh, of the Russian Central Bank, and yes, these are, I mean, presumably signkeers, right? Presumably titles for the sake of having titles. Who knows? Maybe he had some work to do with the Central Bank and in terms of paperwork and all that, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But obviously we do have this, I mean, in my opinion, my estimation, relatively significant history of, and um, paper trail from his work in Spain in terms of, you know, illicit flows and in terms of management of assorted criminal networks in Spain, you know, ProPublica had an excellent article on his history. Unfortunately, I don't speak Spanish, so I'm relying a lot on translated material. Uh, His work within that network, the fact that he fled Spain, I mean, it was like a couple of days before he was due to be arrested. Unfortunately, he wasn't arrested. Unfortunately, he was able to uh, to head back to, um, uh, I guess, back to, to to Moscow there thereafter. That's that's one aspect of it. So it's not just that he has these positions on the Federation Council and on the you know in the Russian Central Bank. Is that there is a very clear, at least alleged, history of management within organized crime groups, and that again gets back to the. You know, broader discussions on mafia state, et cetera, et cetera, you know, which obviously Galliardi has written plenty about. That's one aspect. The other aspect, and, and this is again something that I feel like too much of my life revolves around what Mark Galliardi has, has written or, or has said because it's, he gives a lot of interviews and he's certainly written plenty on it. But this, there was a term that he used that I that I kind of took to this ad hoc, ad hoc nature of these influence operations torsion presumably was the brainchild of this given his own relationship with the nra this is something we've seen play out with you know whatever other number of aspects whether it's prigozhin and the troll farms whether it's you know yonov and the folks from texas and california flying over to moscow saying who knows you know why the heck not we'll see what sticks um obviously whether it's the uh, the hacking operations these nebulous ideas that take root in certain pillars of uh, you know non-kremlin higher up non-putin inner circle aspects of you know russia's Governing stru- structure and, and this NRA, you know, operation or relationship or cultivation, whatever term you want to use, would seem to fit within that paradigm in the sense of torsion being sparked with an idea, saying this is, and to their credit, I mean, it, it you know, it wasn't, it was an excellent idea until it wasn't. You know, until everything else happened, you know, they're, they're, they're flying over to NRA higher-ups. They're having these sit-down meetings with, you know, sitting American congressmen. I don't know if you saw in the documents, they, were, they went to the, um, you know, Butina and Torsion went to the National Prayer Breakfast in 2017. Uh, the organizer of the National Prayer Breakfast promised to get them a sit-down meeting with Trump, right? Who? At that point as president, obviously we know that Butina had asked him some questions at the end of the day, but that would have been a remarkable success for what they were referring to as a back channel or a back channel operation or, you know, whatever terminology. So, yeah, I I would say that torsion is a – He's a fascinating figure. I wish I knew more about him. His Twitter feed in and of itself is fascinating because it's all guns and, you know, American flags and you know aspects of his uh, supposed Christian fundamentalism and, and this and this and this. And why can't we all just get along, look at all these wonderful overarching uh, interests that we that we have with each other? let's just let bygones be bygones and let's just move ahead. You know, let's just, let's just unify, get this back on track. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, 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 hopefully I'll I'll have the chance to cross paths with him at some point, someday.
1: This this is usually talked about in terms of torsion and Butina's, like, attempts to kind of influence the NRA. But the, I mean, the American right wing has a history of trying to reach out to Russia as well so I mean is this is there a mutual aspect here too
0: this this is part and parcel I mean it's one 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 of the same project it's God guns I don't know maybe there's a third G but those are the two main ones right it's God and it's God it's Christian fundamentalism and it's the right to bear arms and obviously you're as familiar as anyone with the lack of emphasis on right to bear arms let alone any kind of advanced weaponry in Russia which makes this whole debacle that much more hilarious that the NRA was unable to pick up on the fact that there is no you know, groundswell of support, let alone top-down indication of support for the right to bear arms in Russia, aside from, you know, your, your grandfather's shotgun, you know, from the you know, Great Patriotic War and all that. There are, um, yes, I mean, it's, 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 it's part and parcel. We see it play out with, uh, you know, leading evangelical voices here in the U.S., whether it's, I don't know if you saw, just last month, Franklin Graham, kind of out of nowhere, decided that he was going to fly to Moscow and have a sit-down meeting with uh, Vyacheslav Volodin, who, you know, again, has been sanctioned by the US for the last five years, but Franklin Graham decides it's a good idea to have a sit-down meeting, talk about, again, American-Russian relations, and then go on his, I think it was his Instagram, and say, boy, it was such an honor to meet that Mr. Volodin. So many wonderful things to say. There's so many aspects of American-Russian relations that we can see eye-to-eye on. Why can't we just focus on that? Yes, this is, I mean, it's very much something that, and this is this is something that we saw really peak in 2014, 2015. It's been a little bit less so now that Trump is in office. But but certainly when um, when Obama was office, and especially when Clinton was perceived as the kind of the, I mean the likely successor, you had any number of American evangelicals looking at Putin. And this was this was something obviously that, that Putin, after his, he returned to the Kremlin in uh, 2012, it played up, looking at him as you know God's messenger on earth. This is what a Christian country looks like. This is what a traditional uh, a country that supports traditional family looks like. We need this. We need him. We need uh, uh, um, that type of legislation. That type of leader leadership in, um, uh, in the U.S. And, it, you know, I don't know how many times I've used the phrase to Putin's credit, but to his credit, he was very capable of playing up that image, playing up that narrative and finding a uh, massive groundswell of support among segments of the American right, especially the uh, Christian fundamentalist variants. It's still there. You still see it. Again, you know, Franklin Graham was there just last month. It, it's It's not what it was four or five years ago, but that's not to say it can't come around again. So... Anyways, it's a lot of fun. Um, I was at, uh, there's, there's so, so Graham goes over there last month. The other one is the other main organization that I've had the chance to cover is called the uh, World Congress of Families. I don't know if you've come across them. it's this um, it's a group that's been around for about 20 years. It's, again, it's probably the leading international anti-gay, anti-abortion, pro-Christian fundamentalist group. It's based technically out of, out of the U.S., but it was a joint Russian-American um, uh, project that began back in the, in the 90s. And they were, I had the chance to go to, their annual conference it was in Moldova last year in Kishinev and it was I mean hands down the strangest thing I've ever been to in my entire life you know you had dancing babies and all you know you know these, these these wonderful families wearing all
1: white, just singing their praise, dancing babies like Allie McBeal dancing. No, babies, not or? like Allie
0: McBeal dancing babies. I mean, it was the babies were not moving of their own volition, but they would be up on the stage. I mean, this was like the opening ceremony. They're up there, and they're, they're I guess parents. Hopefully, it was their parents. You know, making. And then you have like you know three dozen little like third grade girls singing to the you know Moldovan president who's right there. All that wonderful. You know, again with all the back tr- backdrop of it being we need Christian fundamentalists now. We can't wait. You know, we need the the model that we saw. in Moscow and to a lesser extent, play out in Moldova. We need to have it in the US, et cetera, et cetera. But you have folks like Yelena Mizulina, who's there speaking. Again, this is an American group in late 2017 organizing a conference with freaking Mizulina, who, again, you know, I sound like a broken record, but has been sanctioned by the US for four or five years now. You have um, like Constantine Malafeev's like right hand man is there speaking. I had the chance to talk to him. He's an interesting guy. You have um, Yakunin's wife was there speaking. Yakunin himself unfortunately didn't come, so I, I couldn't ask him about the uh, the mansion he built for his wife that had a separate room for fur coats, and how that fits within God's plan. So I, I think it's. To-
1: Listen, I I wanted, I wanted, I just wanted to get your sense of how you think the American media has handled the case so far. And the, the like. The one kind of critical, or the most critical, there's probably more than one, but the one that comes to mind is the James Bamford, or I think it's Bamford, his article in The New Republic, The Spy Who Wasn't, and it came out in February. And he, he says, he kind of, this is something that a lot of critics of American reporting on Russia say repeatedly is sort of like, this mistake mirrors the lead up to the Iraq war. The implication being Journalists are taking the U.S. government at its word too much, right? They're too, they're marching in step. It's the same problem. We didn't learn our lesson, that sort of thing. To what degree do you sympathize or do you kind of reject that criticism?
0: I, I think it goes without saying that there has been any number of moments of overreach, of exaggeration, of hysteria. I mean, obviously, especially on cable news, that's the one that everyone goes to, but also within within print. You know, we see examples in a Washington Post of, um, you know, last year of, of uh, you know, Russian hackers taking over that Vermont electric grid, which... You know, was immediately walked back. You, you know, there, there's a raft of examples of mistakes made, stories unconfirmed. You know, Paul Manafort visiting Julian Assange in the Ecuador embassy. No one else has been able to confirm that. And so it's funny because, to an extent, I, to an extent, I sympathize with the most prominent voices on the, as they refer to themselves, the RussiaGate skeptic crowd. So those are the folks like Glenn Greenwald. That's the folks like Matt Taibbi. Those are the two main ones. I don't, I don't name any. Names and I, I certainly have no love lost for, especially Mr. Greenwald. He's he's called me some very unkind things in the past, and that's fine. That's that's his right. But I do sympathize to a certain extent his critiques of the media. That Bamford article doesn't does not fit within that assessment that I or I, I think a lot of other uh, journalists who have a, kind of a pre 2016 history of at least covering the space or, or certainly studying the, the post-Soviet space half. You know, he didn't disclose he was friends with Butina. He didn't disclose that torsion was sanctioned. He didn't disclose any of the information that has come out about her communication. You know, nothing that quote unquote diplomacy project, you know, nothing about why she was able to you know question Trump in 2015 at the NRA convention. There were any number of details within there. And that's fine. He's making an argument. OK, unfortunately, it wasn't an 800 word opinion piece. It was a 4000 word I don't know if it was a cover story, it was certainly presented as a cover story in the New Republic website. And you know, this is a guy, Bamford, who has a a stellar history as an investigative journalist, as a whistleblower, and so to see him put his foot down and say, this is actually part and parcel with the broader hysteria. This is, and again, there that's not to say there haven't been aspects of hysteria around Boutina. You know, the prosecutors coming out and saying that she was using her, you know, her body and her, you know, womanly guile to seduce. So that is, I can't fathom what she must've felt like reading that, let alone um, how much it set back the prosecutor's case in and of itself. But that, that Bamford article was, was um, unfortunate. And, and I don't know if you, I go to his Twitter feed from time to time, and his uh, maybe there's another one. that's more most recent. The Most recent one I saw was from him thanking Oliver Stone for his you know vote of confidence in his you know assessment of of that that for piece. I said you know if there is a if there isn't like if there is the tiniest morsel that you know a, a great synecdoche that, that kind of represents everything else that I find distasteful with that piece in particular it's that so it's um it's unfortunate and, uh, and and we do see that you know he's he seems close to the type of kind of uh uh almost libertarian-ish other voices that we see that that came out in support of butina like that rockefeller air guy george o'neill who works at the american conservative you know Dana Rohrabacher. uh, uh he, he he certainly seems to fit that mold he wasn't a nobody writing this you know he had a reputation in the history and and I, you know who you know, if I look back on this in 5 10 15 20 years it's entirely possible that I say Jesus Christ what was I thinking of course he was right of course this was an overreach you know at the moment I don't I don't I don't think so um, but um, but uh, yeah so that's how I would respond to that article so yeah uh, this is something I didn't mention earlier something that is going to be worth watching for on the boutina thing moving forward is how is whether or not this 951 regulation if this is a one-off or if this actually continues and extends in the future. We've seen a massive spike in Farah violations and prosecutions over the last couple of years. And there is now a new dedicated task force at DOJ to following and enforcing Farah violations. I haven't seen anything more about a 951. And I think that will be part of how the kind of Butina case itself is is remembered or analyzed in the future. I, I, if it's a one-off, I don't, I don't know that it will age well. But if it is part and parcel, again, of a broader kind of increased enforcement of these types of, again, back-channel communications. As long as it's not specific to Russia, not specific to 2016, I, you know, I think that'll, rather than something that sparked it, I think it'll, uh, we'll, we'll look back in a decade at it kind of in a different light. So, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. So Who knows? Um, you know, just, uh, uh, you know, if you have any uh, you know, young, beautiful Russian women reach out to you asking for contacts to you know Connecticut legislators or whatever just um, uh, you know maybe think twice
1: that's my interview with Casey Michelle an investigative reporter at Think Progress, a member of the Advisory Council at the Hudson Institute's Kleptocracy Initiative, and a senior investigative fellow with the Human Rights Foundation. In the description of this podcast episode, I'll include hyperlinks to Casey's Twitter page and his author page at Think Progress. If you enjoyed this interview and like listening to this podcast, please consider skipping over to patreon.com backslash Kevin Rothrock, where you can make a contribution. Thanks to everyone already pitching in, and I'm happy to get feedback on Twitter, by the way, if ever you've a comment... Or a question about the show. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time. даи дорога, вылипай королю. У него денжонных много, а я денежки люблю. Ой-ой-ой, ой-ой-ой.